All right, grab your Bibles now. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's October, and that means that we need to be studying the book of Romans. And if you know anything about the um, Protestant Reformation, you know the logic of that sentence. Um, but our next chapter in our great chapter series is going to be Romans chapter 4. So turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And let me read to you from verse, beginning at verse 21, and I'll read through verse 26. It reads like this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, just recently I had a woman uh, say to me that her pastor had just preached a sermon on the whole book of Romans and he did it in 20 minutes. And then she added, oh, it was wonderful. Well, um, as many of you know, I taught through the book of Romans on Wednesday nights, and it took me a little bit longer than 20 minutes. Um, I took 11 years, uh, which means I guess I must have done something wrong. Um, but guys, if you are an evangelical, you love the book of Romans. If you're a reformed evangelical like me, then then you consider the book of Romans to be what we call our book. This is our book. Um, it is our book for a lot of reasons. But the primary reason that we consider it to be so special is because it is a book that defines and explains the gospel. It's a book that explains the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is a synonym for the gospel. They're the same thing, the gospel, justification by faith. That, that is the gospel. It's the doctrine that Luther said is the hinge on which the entire Christian faith pivots, the doctrine of justification by faith. Um, it is this book. In fact, you can see it in chapter 1 so marvelously well. You Notice in chapter 1, um, Paul says, I have been <clears throat> set apart as an apostle to the gospel of God. That is, God brought into being this man who was to be an apostle. For what reason? So that he could explain and define the gospel in all of its profundities and beauties. Uh, he goes on in, chapter, in verse 15 of chapter 1 and says, I can't wait to get to Rome. I can't wait to see you people because I can't wait to preach the gospel to you. Then he says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel 
And then he says in verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Folks, this book of Romans is a book about the gospel. So if you love the gospel, you love this book too. <laughs> um, if you if you're interested in understanding the gospel more deeply or fully, it would be wise to come and enjoy the book of Romans. Guys, no book has played such a vital role in the history of the Christian church as has the book of Romans. Uh, Augustine, the great theologian of the church, Augustine was saved through a text in Romans 13. Martin Luther launched the Protestant Reformation on, based on Romans 1.17. Um, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress based on the book of Romans. John Wesley was saved uh, by reading the pre Luther's preface to the, his commentary on the book of Romans. This is our book. If you love the gospel, folks, this is our book. Now, wait just a second, Dr. Young. You, you, you've gone a little bit, you've already confused me. Um, I mean, didn't you say a moment ago that we're going to study Romans 4, or did you misspeak? Um, and if we're going to study Romans 4, why did you read the text out of Romans 3? Well, that's a good question. And so we're going to fin uh, spend a few minutes answering that question. Guys, why is the gospel message, that is, this message about good news, not good advice, it's good news. Why is the gospel message needed at all? Well, Paul begins to tell you that in verse 18 of chapter 1, and you'll notice there the mention of the wrath of God. He then continues that theme throughout for the next couple of chapters almost to the end of chapter 3 he is developing this idea that because of sin man has been ruined and is subject to the wrath of God and he goes through a couple of chapters as he does so and he comes to verse 20 of chapter 3 and he says for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight folks um, our need, our greatest need is not to love our neighbor. As important as that might be, our, our greatest need is to love this God. Uh, Luther once said, our need is not to know a gracious, is, our need is to know a gracious God, not a gracious neighbor. Our primary problem with other men uh, is the result of having a bigger problem with God. Our problem is not that we don't get along with each other, our problem is we don't get along with God. And very frankly, the reason that we don't get along with each other is because we don't get along with God. That's why we've got so many broken relationships. <clears throat> Folks, um, all of that brokenness in our relationship with God is the thing that led to his wrath. And then, as I just read, no man 
will ever be justified in his sight. No man, none of us, none of us. Oh, evey, <laughs> woe is me. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait just a minute. What's that I see in verse 21? But now. And ladies and gentlemen, through that conjunction and adverb, Paul launches his explanation of the gospel. Do you see what he's done? He has led you through three chapters of telling you that man is ruined by sin and is subject to the wrath of God. And then he leaves you <coughs> by saying, no man will be justified in his sight. And then verse 21. But now. The gospel in conjunctions. Lloyd-Jones says, the gospel is found in these two little words, but now. And as he gives us those two little words, he is going to give us, he's beginning to give us God's answer to man's total failure. With those two little words, folks, he begins an explanation of the gospel. I'm telling you, gang, there are no more beautiful words in the Bible than those two little words, but now. But you won't understand that until you've understood what has come before it. From chapters 1 and 2 and most of chapter 3, he has told us how we have been ruined by sin. If he had stopped there, we may be hopeless. But then we come to verse 21 where his whole conversation shifts and pivots to an explanation of the gospel. He introduces this new thing. And what is this new thing? Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is. There's the new thing, ladies and gentlemen. There you find the gospel. Guys, he goes on from there in verses 23 and 24. There's so much we could talk about. There's words in there like grace and gift and redemption. We could spend 20 minutes on each of those words, but we just don't have the time. I, I want to invite you to come down with me a little bit further to verse 25, which I consider my real text this morning. And it's in verse 25 where Paul begins to explain redemption that he just mentioned in 24. How is it that the mercy of God can be reconciled with the justice of God? How is it that we as guilty people can be redeemed? Gang, I bet you didn't know this, but did you know that verse 25 has been called by many the Acropolis of the Christian faith and the Bible. Romans 3.25 is this mountain peak, this, this apex of some of the things that have been written throughout the centuries in the Old and New Testaments. Look at what it says, folks. Verse 25. Whom, by the way, 
That's a pronoun that refers, look at verse 1, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom? That is, he's talking about Christ in verse 25, whom, look at this, God put forward. <clears throat> Pardon me. Gang, do you notice who is in the driver's seat when it comes to this message of the gospel? It is God the Father. God has put forward who? He put forward Jesus. G gang, what Jesus accomplishes on Calvary is a, is a proclamation. It's a public declaration of something that God has begun. God has put forward a remedy for the sin that Paul has described in the first three and a half chapters. You see, the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ is at the center of one's grasp of the gospel. And do you know how Paul goes on to explain this? That is the meaning of Christ's death. He gives us two words. Um, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Gang. That word propitiation might trip you up. Just in case it does. Don't let it. Stay with me. If you, can, if you can stay with me about three minutes here, let me explain the word propitiation. Guys, the Greek word for propitiation is the word hilosmos. Hilosmos. Store that away. I think most of you know that in the second and third centuries BC, before Christ, a group of scholars met in Alexandria, Egypt, and they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. That is called the Septuagint. You've heard of that. It's represented with an L, an X, and an X. Roman numerals for 70. The Septuagint. Well, the Septuagint is a Greek rendering of the Old Testament Hebrew. When the scholars of the Septuagint came to say uh, Exodus 25, they found the word mercy seat. Now what is that? You know what the mercy seat was, guys? That was a slab of gold that laid on the top of the Ark of the Covenant back in the holiest of the holies. Remember all that? Does that ring a bell? Guys, there was the Ark of the Covenant back in the holiest of holies that the high priest went back there one day a year in the Day of Atonement. Well, in that Ark was the law. And on the top of the, the top was a slab of gold called the mercy seat. It's the thing on which the high priest would pour blood on the Day of Atonement. When the translators of the Septuagint came to the word mercy seat, the Greek word that they used was that one? Hilosmos. Do you know what we're being told in verse 25? That Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. He's the thing on which the wrath of God was poured. And by his shedding of blood, the law 
that clamors for your condemnation is quieted. Gang, nowhere in the Bible are we ever told that it's the miracles or the teachings or the doings of Jesus Christ that saves. It is always found in his sufferings. What is the meaning of his work? Well, it's the same thing that was provided by the mercy seat. It was the place where blood was spilled and sin was forgiven and the sinner set free. Whom God put forward to be the propitiation by his blood. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, it's called the Acropolis of the New Testament. There is seven or eight words, and there you have it. Gang, um, in the Old Testament, there was no provision for dealing with sins in a radical and permanent way. The Old Testament sacrifices that you see so much in the Old Testament, those sacrifices never forgave sin. They only pointed to the remedy that God would one day provide as a remedy for sin. Folks, that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. That all of that stuff that you see in the Old Testament is supposed to point you to the one that God would, at the present time, says our text, that God would put forward in the person and work of his son. Were Old Testament saints forgiven by the sacrifices in the Old Testament? No! Old Testament saints were forgiven just like you are. They looked forward to what, what God would provide as a substitute. You and I simply look back at it. It was because God knew what he was going to do at Calvary that he was able, look at what the text says, that he was able to pass over former sins. He passed over knowing that centuries later he would provide, he would put forward the payment, the remedy for those sins as well as ours. Guys, critics have, have leveled complaints against God for passing over sin, that it shows that he's compromised by that self-restraint. Gang, the cross is more than just a statement about God forgiving us. The cross is a statement about the character of God. God is not willing to violate his own character even if it means saving us. So what does he do? He takes all of that stored up punishment so rightly deserved by people like me and pours it out without restraint on 
the Savior that he put forward. Guys, the service of Jesus Christ is first aimed at his Father. The person of Jesus Christ is a repudiation of God's justice. So that, says the text, he can be just. And at the same time, the justifier of people like us. God clears the guilty, but is not guilty in his doing so. So, Dr. Young, again, you, you just... You just avoided my question. I mean, why did we start in chapter 3 if we're going to start, we're going to study chapter 4? Because, ladies and gentlemen, what you're going to find in chapter 4 is, is a, a chapter long illustration using Abraham, a chapter long illustration of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Paul gives us the good news of the gospel in capsule form in chapter 3. And then he go in chapter 4, he uses Abraham to illustrate to his audience what he has just taught to an audience that contains Jews. In chapter 4, Paul is trying to illustrate what he said in chapter 3. And he's going to use Abraham as his case in point. Because for Paul, if he can show to Jews that their hero, the father of the faith, if he can prove to them that Abraham was saved by faith and not works, then all of this foolish clamor about obedience of the Ten Commandments human performance and law works and self-salvation, all of that nonsense would be silenced, at least, at least doctrinally. Because you know as well as I that men so want to be their own saviors that even though I may win the argument, that doesn't necessarily mean I've won the man. So, let me put this question to you. Have you stopped all of this clamor, this foolish nonsense about what a good person you are? That you've, I've never heard anyone and I go to church quite frequently. Please, stop it. Stop it, that talk. My friend, don't try to take that, that kind of stuff into the presence of God with you. Discard it. 
discarded as the filthy rag that it is. Be done with your deadly doings. And then race to the one whom God the Father has put forward as the Savior of sinners. Guys, my wife tells me that I shouldn't say this very much, so I'm going to try to say this non-offensively. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of television. Um, she thinks that's a, a, a signal, a virtue signaling or something, but I'm, I'm, I, just, I don't watch much television. I watch sports. I like that. But even in the little bit of television that I watch, I have seen a, an advertisement. And I hope you've seen it because it'll help. It'll help in this illustration. It's, a, it's, a, it's an advertisement for a series, I guess. A Netflix series or a um, Hulu series or somebody's series. Or maybe it's a movie. I don't know which. But the title of it is, or the title of the movie is La Brea. Have you seen that? La Brea. I think it has to do with an earthquake in Los Angeles, but I'm not even sure of that. Um, and I think La Brea, again, I'm not sure of this, but I think La Brea means the big one, the, the big earthquake. Well, in this little trailer for this series called La Brea, there is this one scene where this woman is lying on the edge of the cliff and she's holding on to this other woman. And beneath her is this vast bottomless abyss and the woman that's on the ground is holding onto this woman <coughs> and she's saying don't worry I've got you and if you've seen the, the advertisement you notice that the next scene the woman is drifting into the abyss and falling and disappears Gang, your faith is just as good as the object in which you put it. If you put your faith in all of your goodnesses, in all of your kindnesses, in all of your giving to the United Way and your church attendance, if that's the thing in which you put your faith, my friend, you will end up in the abyss, in the eternal chasm. Because you put your faith in something that couldn't deliver you. Your faith is just as good as the object in which you put it. And the only proper object of faith is the Savior whom the Father put forth. His name is Jesus Christ. Our Father, I, I thank you for the privilege that is mine that I get to preach this glorious gospel. 
a message that is not good advice. It's good news. It's good news to broken, inconsistent people like me. It's good news in people who have skeletons hanging in their closets. It's good news to people who have past that they don't want anybody to know about. It's a grand and glorious gospel that tells us that you, O oh God, put forward a Savior to become a propitiation by His blood for all those who put their faith in Him. Oh God, there are a lot of people in this room who have. But not everybody. And they are right now holding on to a hand that is about to let them fall into the abyss. Father, would you show them the abyss? And would you show them that they're holding on to that which is a filthy rag? And then would you show them the beauty of Christ Jesus, the Savior that you put forward? We glory in him. We glory in the message about him. We are people who know that if we were to get what we deserved, we would end up in the abyss as well. But you, O oh God, have told us in the gospel that your righteousness is on display in your willingness to accept the finished work of Jesus Christ as a substitute for our failure. Oh, we come. And we come gladly. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.